0: I wanted to tell you, actually, last year when I heard you perform Barber with the Nashville Symphony, you converted me to liking this concerto. I was not a fan of it before, but I never heard it live. And when I heard you perform it, I loved it.
1: That's funny because that's exactly my story as well. I only knew it from recordings. But then I heard Wendy Warner play it live in the late 90s. and, and, I mean, she's a fantastic cellist and she played it so beautiful that I realized it's a great piece, but it has to be played well. It's very deep and sincere and it, I don't like insincerity in, in any music, in, in music making and also in composing. It's the best American cello concerto, hands down. I mean, there's no other one. There are quite a few, but that's by far the best.
0: I'm Saniva Kali. Welcome to Cello Century, where we reflect back on the heartache and the beauty of the 20th century, as heard through five of the great modern cello concertos. This week's guest is cellist Albin Gerhardt. Albin has recorded extensively for Hyperion Records and is a regular collaborator, with leading orchestras in Europe and the United States.
1: It's what, what all music is about. It's about, um, you know, there's a lot of love and loss and fear and some anger and a lot of wittiness in the last movement, but, but never never it's never superficial.
0: Samuel Barber was born in 1910, and he was still quite a young man when he started receiving awards and recognition for his music. In 1938, the great conductor Arturo Toscanini premiered some of Barber's music on the radio with the NBC Symphony Orchestra. The members of the orchestra have now taken their places and Mr. Toscanini is returning to the center of the stage. We shall hear these two pieces by Samuel Barber, Adagio for strings and Essay for orchestra. Toscanini premiere launched Barber to national prominence, a level of success that was not at all a given for someone composing in his fairly conservative style. Here's some quick context: in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, classical music was highly politicized, both in Europe and the United States. Franklin Roosevelt's administration promoted art that was populist in style. The government offered support to art that was simple had a broad public appeal, and celebrated America's alleged national values. Aaron Copland was very successful in this vein. His music features folk-like tunes, simple open harmonies, and topics drawn from American folklore. This is music from his ballet Appalachian Spring, which won the Pulitzer Prize for Music in 1945, the same year that Barbara's Cello Concerto was written. Unfortunately, President Roosevelt wasn't the only world leader who was invested in the populist style. Both Hitler and Stalin employed this same type of folksy, of-the-people music as propaganda to support their authoritarian regimes. Because of this, many musicians completely rejected tonalism and all the old German-influenced styles of music-making. Composers in the avant-garde school of thought favored dissonance and experimentation in their works. As American composer John Cage described it, music was branching off into many different streams. This is Cage's music, Three Dances for Two Prepared Pianos, also written in 1945.
1: I don't know if you know about this whole thing after the Second World War that there was the Adorno, this philosopher said that after the Holocaust, no beautiful music could be written anymore. He was very influential and incredibly smart man. Composers didn't dare to write anything beautiful anymore. I mean, Richard Strauss was the last guy in Central Europe writing stuff like that, but he was allowed because he was who he was.
0: Barber's music was very much in the stream of Richard Strauss. It displayed the old Teutonic values of rich orchestration, long melody lines, and chromatic harmonies. Remember that radio performance by Toscanini? Here's the reaction of one contemporary critic. One listened in vain for evidence of youthful vigor, freshness, or fire, for use of a contemporary idiom. Mr. Barber's was authentic, dull, serious music, utterly anachronistic as the utterance of a young man of 28, A.D. 1938. But despite politicians and critics, listeners understood and embraced Barber's music. He had a knack for drawing piecemeal on the different ideas that were swirling in the culture. He took what he liked and created his own distinct and appealing style. The first movement of the cello concerto is a good example of this amalgamation of musical styles. In the first minute of the piece, we'll hear four completely contrasting musical motives. The entire first movement is built out of these four ideas— Are you ready? First, a jagged vertical motive that emphasizes offbeats. Second, a melodic folk song. Third, a winding chromatic line that moves in tight half and whole steps. And finally, a sweeping cinematic melody that could fit right in in a Hollywood movie. Okay, here we go Motive one. Motive two. Motive three. Motive four. Soloist meanders in with the chromatic motive before making its way to the more hummable folk song melody, which I consider the primary theme of this movement. Barber approximates a folkish style by drawing on several musical characteristics common to many folk traditions worldwide. A simple symmetrical phrase structure, mixture of major, minor, and phrygian modes, and a distinctive, short-long, short-long, rhythm that's sometimes called a Scottish snap. The concerto is regarded as one of the most difficult written in the 20th century. Barber's partner Giancarlo Menotti wrote, Sam has just finished a wow of a cello concerto, which will make the cellist's hair stand.
1: To to really play the, the thirds and the sixth the, the quick ones in tune and, and with good sound, that is not so easy. That's what I practice most, I think. In the concert it's difficult to tell because it's so fast. But I can I can hear it. So I'm always annoyed if it doesn't work.
0: soloist is carried along by a buoyant accompaniment that often features the woodwinds.
1: He deals with orchestra and soloist so well. It's, uh, there's hardly any a balance problem, I feel, which is often in, in concertos of the late 20th century, that's the big problem, that they're just too heavily instrumentated and, and Barber took care of it.
0: Barber himself wrote to his uncle, It is such a difficult problem to balance solo cello with all its limitations of sonority and orchestra. I think if I had realized the difficulties involved, I should never have attempted it. Barber worked closely with cellist Raya Garbusova, meeting with her for hours so he could understand all the potentialities of her cello technique. Garbusova loved to play in the high registers of the cello and her influence shows. In the development, Barber transforms the angular opening motive into a legato sigh. He uses that same angular motive to create an accompaniment for a new theme that is soft and wistful. Years later, Barbara talked about revising the cello concerto to make it less difficult, notably throwing out those thorny thirds but he never got around to it. Barbara was a singer and about two-thirds of his entire compositional output was written for voice. The perennial attraction of his music owes a lot to his seemingly effortless gift of melody. He paid special attention to setting texts in a way that suited the natural cadence of speech. In order to do this, he would often mix meters or tie notes over the bar lines to obscure a sense of where the strong beat was. The result was long, melodic lines that seemed to exist outside of rhythm and time. The influence of vocal music flowed out into Barber's instrumental music as well. You can definitely hear it in the second movement of the cello concerto. Oh, by the way, if you're only going to listen to two minutes of the Barber concerto, those two minutes should definitely be the opening of the second movement. The time signature of this movement is eight eighth notes per bar, which should be a pretty square meter, but Barber floats the rhythms over the bar lines for that wonderful sense of everlasting melody. The main pattern featured is a dotted rhythm, which can sound like a lullaby and has a lot of natural tension and release. The solo cello plays in canon with a solo oboe, with the oboe echoing everything one-fifth above. Barber also sets up an interesting interplay between major and minor. We're in the key of C-sharp minor, but the majority of the melody is built around a mixture of major and minor thirds. In other words, it's hard to tell if this music is happy or sad.
1: The slow movement is one of the most beautiful things written actually for cello and orchestra it's like a big beautiful chant almost in a religious way everybody agrees that the cello is the closest to the human voice and it needs that and the cellist should take it serious and not not do any cello rubbing there it's it's, it should be really thinking of, of a beautiful singer.
0: About halfway through the piece, the solo cello has a cadenza. As it emerges on a high C sharp, almost all the way up on its highest string, the main melody is taken over by the low strings in the orchestra. They play three whole octaves beneath the soloist, and there's almost nothing in between. By choosing these two contrasting registers, Barber opens up an enormous chasm of sonic space. This culminates with all of the strings in the orchestra playing the melody and the descant Forte Molto Espressivo. It's a moment that gives the adagio for strings a run for its money. Personally, the word that describes this movement is consolation. There's a lot of melancholy, but there's sweetness as well. However, something ominous does happen at the very end. In the last three measures, the cello drops down to a low C sharp, almost the lowest note on the cello. The sudden drop to this dark register, accompanied by a final statement of the melody in the low strings, is like a storm cloud on the horizon. And it was here, after writing those final measures, that Barber got stuck. In July 1945, he had finished the first two movements, but he was struggling to get on with the third. Of course, there was a lot going on. World War II ended, and Barber was discharged from the Air Force. He'd been in the Air Force since 1942, but his position as a composer of national significance had earned him a cushy desk job. It wouldn't really be an exaggeration to say that Barber's experience of the war was a pretty pampered one. In 1943, one of his most committed patrons even helped him to purchase a beautiful home in a bucolic area of New York State. He spent most of his time there composing, popping down to New York City when necessary for office duties, or when he wanted to attend philosophical lectures. I think it's easy to hear in the first two movements of the concerto that this was not a wartime work in the same sense that the Elgar concerto was. It's optimistic, energetic, at times affectionate. But the third movement is really different. I think this has something to do with a change in world circumstances. At the beginning of August 1945, two atomic bombs were dropped on Japan. Remember, this happened just after Barber had stalled in his progress on the concerto. An associate of Barber's later claimed that he had begun the third movement, but he scrapped it after hearing the news about Japan. This story has never been corroborated by another source, but I believe it has merit because of what I hear in the music. The opening of the third movement is cataclysmic. The primary theme is obviously a dance with its visceral syncopation, but it's not entirely benign. Sometimes it's mischievous, other times threatening. Orchestra and soloist trade phrases back and forth in a heated dialogue. With almost no sense of transition, we hear the secondary theme. It is starkly in contrast with the first theme, almost disjunct. It's a very medieval sort of theme. The melody line has very little verticality. Its movement is like a canter intoning a chant. Underneath, we hear a descending chromatic line, a ground bass, which has been used since the Renaissance as a musical descriptor of death. Barber uses a cello cadenza to lead us back into the primary theme. Something else that strikes me as unusual about this movement is that it's so sharply segmented. In the first movement, we were treated to a kaleidoscope of sound created by the interweaving of multiple motives. Here we don't get that same showmanship of compositional technique. Instead, I think we're hearing something that is very deeply felt. I sense that a new level of sobriety has elbowed its way into the third movement. Maybe it even took the composer by surprise. We've certainly come a long way from where we started. wasn't shy about infusing his music with genuine, personal feelings. He said, I write what I feel. I'm not a self-conscious composer. In the midst of many shifting musical trends, he preferred to trust what he called his own inner voice. In 1971, he wrote this, I think that what's been holding composers back a great deal is that they feel they must have a new style every year. This, in my case, would be hopeless. I just go on doing, as they say, my thing. I believe this takes a certain courage. Thanks for joining me today, and thank you, of course, to our guest, Albin Gerhardt. You'll want to check out his latest album release with Hyperion Records, The Six Bach Cello Suites. Next week, the Cold War composer who represented the Soviet Union on the world stage but was known to say in private, communism is impossible. Join me for the Shostakovich Concerto Number 1. And meanwhile, don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss any of the great music that's coming your way.